Welcome to the Conversation 360's podcast and this series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase the people whose life, work, and experience can shed light on what is taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. The first six months I, I was in Shanghai, I think I cried every day and wanted to leave. Um, but, you know, after six months, um, you know, I started understanding and embracing um, the culture, the people, the way things work, um, and there is a system. Those were the words of Xiao Liu, who commenting on the cultural shift that she experienced when she moved to China over a decade ago. She quickly became accustomed to China and its fast pace. I mean, it's still really hard to, to understand how China works, because if you're out of the loop within, what, one or two weeks, you, things develop so quickly in China that, you know, things change, and I feel like sometimes we're still not able to keep up. Xiao is executive VP of Ogilvy's healthcare business and has lived and worked in both Hong Kong and China for a number of years. An avid traveler, she's visited 70 countries and speaks both Mandarin and English. Xiao recently returned to the U.S. and can talk knowledgeably about what's happening in both Asia and the West, including developments in the world of pharmaceuticals. There is now major activity in pharmaceutical development in China, and as she remarks... The other pharmaceutical companies, the local ones, started to feel and recognize that there's, you know, competition coming in and that they could compete um, if they just understood what the process and procedures were for, you know, drug development. Some of you know about my inner circle work for corporate clients. Xiao Liu was a lively participant and one of them on innovation. So I'm delighted she's joining us on Asia and the West. You'll hear her views on innovation, the pace of life in China, and how competition in new medicines and healthcare practices is driving the healthcare industries in both China and the West. We'll talk about those topics and much more. So let's get started. Welcome to Conversation 360 podcast and especially this series, Asia and the West show. Thank you very much, Susan. So when we talk about the conversations taking place in and between Asia and the West, what does that bring to mind for you? I think there's two main things that come to mind when you ask me about that. Um, having lived overseas uh, for you know a period of time and during the, the growth of China at that time, uh, within you know 2005 around that period, you know brings two things to mind. I think the first thing is, you know how much has changed within that, that these many years since I've been home. Um, and in 2016 now, I see a big change from, you know how we used to bring a lot of the West thinking to the East, but now we are actually helping um, the East, uh, primarily you know China and Taiwan and Hong Kong to bring a lot of their business, their thinking to the West now, because they're very much interested in tapping and, and coming into um, and being commercially viable in the West countries, um, particularly U.S. and Canada and, and sometimes some of uh, Latin America. The second thing that comes to mind is how um, I'm very involved with the universities as well, since as you can, as you just mentioned, I've been to, um, I've, I've attended many universities, and I see a big shift now where the children who are sent out here um, to the West for school, for university graduate program, are very um, uh, interested in going back East. Um, after completing their degree because they realize that there are really good jobs and opportunities back home, whereas 
couple years ago, um, it used to be that a lot of the, the international students still wanted to stay in the West, um, but now you see a shift in um, what they think would be uh, better for them upon graduation. So I imagine that when you're in the West, that is this part of the world, people think you can explain all things Chinese and vice versa. <laughs> uh, so how accurate is the Chinese understanding of the West? I think it's still um, an education period right now. Um, you know, if I talk about it from a business perspective, we were just discussing this today. How do we educate and continue to educate and invest in the education of companies that are doing very well in China and wanting to come to the U.S.? What, is, what are the process and the procedures that they need to go through in order to, say, for example, bring a medicine to uh, that is developed in in China to be on the um, uh, to be offered in the U.S. That is a very tough um, process because the uh, U.S. has very strict rules and regulations with the FDA, but they need to be educated on how and if possible they are able to bring this business over here. So it's still a very um, beginning stages of education, but there is high interest in this, uh, in this field. How about the other way around? How about Western understanding of China? You know, I think, um, to be very candid, um, they right now it's it's still um, a I think it's developed a little bit more than when I left in 2005 2006. Um, I think that there's a lot of Westerners who have gone overseas like myself and have come home back to their home country to really um, still understand how the how China works. I mean, it's still really hard to to understand how China works because if you're out of the loop within what one or two weeks. You, things develop so quickly in China that, you know, things change, and I feel like sometimes we're still not able to keep up, but I feel that we have a greater understanding and appreciation because of those who have lived overseas and who are now back in the U.S. Um, to be able to translate some of that knowledge and experience to the folks who have never been over there. So I feel that um, it's better, better understanding and more, um, more appreciation for sure. So I know that Ogilvy has a large healthcare practice in China and mm -hmm. speaking specifically about medicine. Mm -hmm. How has medicine in China evolved over the past decade? I'm, I'm curious, for instance, how does the use of Western style pharmaceuticals intersect with traditional Chinese medicine practices? Oh, wow. That is something that, you know, we've um, uh, uh, not struggled, but really discussed um, candidly at our office because, you know, um, when I was in-house for a period of time, we did look at traditional medicine, um, Eastern medicine, as um, a potential um, uh, competitor because there's still um, a very strong belief in Eastern medicine. Um, but, you know, I think that the more exposure that um, China and Hong Kong and Taiwan have with Western companies, they also understand the benefits of the, the Western medicine has um, in prolonging life or to, to support, um, you know, various disease areas that have been plaguing, you know, those countries. Um, they do understand that um, there are, are uh, rigid um, rules and regulations when it comes to safety of a product from the Western country, and they'd like to emulate that because it is important to keep um, that stand, uh, standard of care um, for uh, medicines that they are producing in the country, and they understand that they can't just produce uh, these drugs for 
only Chinese citizens, but they would like to one day export them to other parts of the world. But in order to do so, they need to understand what it means to qualify under Western, you know, safety practices um, in order to ensure that their products meet that level of standard. So in the past, as I understand it, China imported most of its true pharma products. Mm -hmm. So when did that shift to the Chinese producing their own begin? Was that when you went there um, in early 2000s or was it since then? I think it was a little bit before my time. I mean, a lot of the pharma companies started, uh, Western pharmaceutical companies, started entering China just a little bit before my time. And they realized that, um, you know, they were able to, they, definitely the Western um, pharmaceutical companies saw a, a good opportunity um, based not solely on population alone, but the fact is that, you know, uh, this is a country that's opening up to the rest of the world finally. And, you know, most of the the middle, well, in, in that article we just read around from The Economist, there was a, a quick uprising from the mid-class, mid-socioeconomic um, status group that was able to um, understand, relate, and, and be appreciative of Western uh, medicines. And uh, that quickly spread because, you know, with, with the increase of social media, with the fact that, I mean, when I moved there, cell phones were rampant, you know, at that time. Um, people were, were very much, um, uh, you know, social. And so they could you know, speak to each other, learn about this new medicines, learn about new multinational companies coming in. And, you know, the other pharmaceutical companies, the local ones, started to feel and recognize that there's, you know, competition coming in and that they could compete um, if they just understood what the process and procedures were for, you know, drug development. And I think at that time, you know, a lot of companies started to develop fast and furious. And at this period of time in 2016, I can you know, point out a few companies that are trying to be as um, competitive with Western companies as possible. So you mentioned the issue of safety around medicine. Is that is that still a big issue? And how did that come about? I still think that that is a perception. Um, I can't, you know, fully, you know, say that it is a a a problem in China. Um, I think again, the media has been a true um, either. Uh, you know, they, they've spoken out about potential issues that have risen from, you know, taking a, a drug that was manufactured within the country. I think that also came out from all of the um, baby formulas, um, you know, powder formulas, all of that, um, you know, was, was uh, told to the public. And that's something that was not um, as uh, openly discussed back when social media was very much controlled. So, you know, I think people understood a lot of these um, errors that were happening within China, and that's how I think the news got out about safety and how important safety is for, you know, drug production and, and, um, and medicine in general. Let's talk about what's on the mind of many people who have an interest in China, and that is what some are calling the downturn in the Chinese economy. What's happening? How is the impact being felt? What's the, what's the impact on your clients' businesses? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely feel an impact. We feel that nowadays um, clients are very much, um, uh, you know, rigid, more rigid with their dollar spend. Um, they want to ensure that there's a true return on investment on the amount that's being spent. Um, I think that our clients are, are trying to be smarter in the way they engage and target 
specific groups that they are w wishing to target, um, and they, you know, they want to ensure that their money is being well spent. So this this downturn, if that's what you call it, or at least a slowing down in the economy, I'm interested yeah. in your perception about individuals there. We, we, we know that this middle class that has just exploded in China, that people born 30 years ago or less than 30 years ago have been living in a country where growth has been exponential. It's all they've known. So okay. is there a, what's the mood there, especially in this middle class? Are they thinking, whoa, uh, Maybe it's not going to be the, the, the future fantasy that I had planned on. Is there, is there some uh, concern? You know, I think that there, when I, if I go back to um, what I said about, you know, kids, uh, university students or graduate students returning back home to China, they still see potential there. Um, you know, it's not that they don't, they, they don't believe that there's still going to be continued growth. I think that they believe that there's going to be a slower growth. Um, it's slowing down, but not in the sense that they feel it will it will go crashing, you know. Um, they believe that there is still opportunity back there and that they are ready and edu well educated and, you know, they've been overseas for quite a number of years now, that they can bring back what they need to um, ensure that this is going to not be a, a downturn, as you said, but just a slowdown in the opportunity um, for, for, you know, the, the middle class to get a job, ensure that they have some form of health care coverage um, and to have a family there that is still um, a better way of living than they feel that they can have in the U.S. So what about individuals becoming more vocal about their concerns about air pollution, about health care, as you brought up? What about their willingness to speak up to authority? You know, Westerners view Chinese as reluctant to do that. They read about punishments to those who take on the government. Is there more speaking out in China now? Do you do you see that, especially among the young? I think they're they're speaking out, and what Westerners think of what speaking out means is very different. I think um, you know the 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 Asian. Um, I think the Chinese they they speak up in a very different way. I think right now um, there has been a a culture of. Um, you know, they're embracing the culture of being able to, you know, talk to their managers more. They understand what it means to be promoted. They understand how to ask for a promotion um, versus just back when I was there. They would just jump ship, meaning they would go to another job immediately if they felt that they could not, they, they were not making it where they uh, should be. Um, nowadays, there's a lot more uh, ability for people to vocalize their needs as well as to engage with their managers on their own uh, development of their positions. Um, I think that back then you could you were never um, you would never see that. You would just see kids who would just you know leave and say yes they were going to be paid a hundred RMB more a month. But now they understand what it means to be in a job and really want to see themselves succeed in that role or at that company. So that speaking up has given them courage because they feel that they're seeing change. They understand that managers want to retain. Um, so, you know, I think that is a big change. Yeah. That's happened over just the last couple of years, I yep. think, because people were talking about that even two years ago. So that's impressive. Now, nonetheless, as, as people are feeling more... Uh, comfortable speaking up and, and uh, 
responding to authority. There are people that have been emigrating and leaving China. In fact, some some sources say that China's brightest and wealthiest are mm -hmm. leaving the country in fairly big numbers. Are you seeing that? I am not seeing that at all. So, you know, that's the funny part. Um, we, we talk, I still have a lot of good friends who live over there, and I think the one thing that's making them leave really is about climate control and climate issues um, in terms of pollution. I think that, you know, they are leaving China for that number one reason. I think the second thing that they always will consider are those who have small children, who they feel that they can still get a better education um, for their child overseas, and that's the second reason. But if you're thinking about China's brightest, I mean, there's a lot of people that I know are still staying in the business world, um, and they've remained in China for the past, what, 10, 15, 20 years now. Um, and I have somebody who's been there for 30-some years, um, and he, he's not going to leave anytime soon. My, my previous boss at Ogilvy. He's been there 30, I think 31 years, and he started the company there, he started the practice there, and he's not going to leave because there's still a huge opportunity for um, the business um, in Asia and especially in China. So I do not see an, a mass ex exit. So, Xiao, for those who do remain, some would say that a crucial requirement, perhaps even more crucial than before, is for China to become innovative in many ways to solve its pressing and large size issues like environmental pollution, healthcare, uh, just a couple that we've we've mentioned already. Uh, so be, let's begin with just saying some think that the Chinese view innovation differently than the West. Is that true? And do you think it is such a big issue for China to really, really pursue innovation in a big way? I think they're still trying to catch up. I think, you know, innovation to China is still um, very much on top of mind. I think that um, there is not, um, there aren't many people who are what we call true innovators in China. Um, you know, I, I, the funny thing is when we think about Asia and we think about true innovation, we are very much um, focused on countries such as Korea, you know, who have developed a lot of innovative products and services. And I think that China is not one that we can pinpoint as a country that has been able to develop innovative, um, innovative opportunities, as I call it. Um, but I don't believe that it is going to be um, a, a reason um, for, you know, the top executives or China's brightest, as you call it, to leave China. Um, it will be a reason for them to think about potential investment on how to get China to be more in innovative. And I think that is so, a good opportunity. So that, that would be my next question. Where will the increased innovation come from in China? Now, we know about Alibaba. We yeah. know about Tencent. Yeah. But the, to, to have it be more widespread than that, will it be the expats or the people who have been educated, who, the Chinese who have been educated in the West and come back with that kind of thinking? Will it be uh, the young? Who are, will it be homegrown among them? Where do you think it's going to come from? I think this is going to be a question where I always follow, like, who is the most hungry? I think those are the folks who are the ones returning back to China after spending God knows how much money on the education they received here. I think they're the hungry ones who want to, you know, step back, go back into their home country and do something that they feel can, you know, help innovate China. And these are areas from everything from environment, like you said, and to healthcare, 
to to quality control of of any kind of uh, you know industry. It's just areas that I think they are very um, hungry to cha make changes and to innovate. And those are the folks that I feel are the ones that have been Western educated and returning back home. So you've mentioned a couple of times the educational systems in the West being preferable to Chinese. Okay. What about the the homegrown educational system? Is that since we know that it is focused on rote learning to pass exams and so on, at least that's what I'm told by many yep. people who complain about it. Is that going to shift? It, will that change? Because it sounds like that would be, if it could be done, would be a source of tremendous difference in terms of how kids begin to think and to uh, become critical thinkers. Yeah, I think, you know, critical thinking is something I still feel China lacks. Um, this is only based upon my, you know, engagement with some of the students um, from China who are coming overseas because I used to help recruit uh, while I lived overseas in Shanghai as well as in Hong Kong. Um, some of the students that were admitted to the colleges and universities here in the U.S., my number one advice to them is always to think differently, to be able to communicate and engage with folks rather than, you know, sitting behind a desk and reading a book. You know, you, I, we learn by, by learning from each other. Um, and I think that's something that China still lacks um, because of the way the school is, you know, the, the teaching method. But, you know, maybe one day they will get there because there are teachers that are from Western countries that are teaching in the top universities in China. Um, I think that with that type of exposure would bring a lot more critical, creative thinking from those students. And you don't need to, you know, send kids overseas anymore where you can actually foster and breed them in China. Sounds like that's a big opportunity for China. So what about issues, pressure around privacy issues? You know, in the West, we are really obsessed with maintaining our personal privacy, including all the data that uh, we may think that we can protect from others yeah. watching it. Is that such a big deal in China? You know, that's an area that I, I really am not qualified to comment on. I think from a healthcare perspective, um, you know, their system from privacy, like HIPAA, they don't have anything like that. <laughs> so, you know, I from, you know, you carry your own... Um, uh, charts. You, you you are in charge of your own health care. You pay for everything out of pocket. Um, there's only a certain amount that the government will pay for. I mean, this is all on, on you. Owners is on, on the person. Um, so I'm not, you know, one to speak about privacy issues in other sense. I think that from a healthcare perspective, they can definitely do better. Um, and, and they need to have systems in place to help them do better. Um, but this is, again, an area of, of development that needs to be discussed from the central government down. Sure. So it sounds like you're ultimately optimistic about China's future. What would you say is the biggest source of your optimism? You know, after living there for, I can tell you, honestly speaking, the first six months I, I was in Shanghai, I think I cried every day and wanted to leave. Uh, but, you know, after six months, um, you know, I started understanding and embracing um, the culture, the people, the way things work. Um, and there is a system with a lack of system. You know, I don't, it's hard for me to say that, but once you get used to and understand and appreciate how China operates, there is a system. Whether it's manic or not, there is a system how they operate. And I believe that folks there are very um, much 
you know, in charge of their, their, their career, their life, their, because, they, you know, the country was closed off for so many years that they were very much an individualistic kind of um, country culture. But now, you know, they, they, they are open to so much in Western society. I mean, if you walk down the street in Shanghai Bund area, back when I was there versus now, it's totally different. I think the, the fact that China has opened up so much to the world offers them the opportunity to continue for growth because back then, you know, years ago when I first went to China in 1989, it was completely different where folks were still second guessing, they were looking at each other very weary, weary, you know, not really understanding who's what, who's doing what. Nowadays, it's more open, people are more embracing like, you know, the, the opportunities as well as you know, new new money that's coming in. Um, they feel that uh, there's no um, downturn again. Like I said, it's much more of a slowing down, but they actually appreciate that a little bit because the the fast pace that it's been going for how many years now, maybe twenty last 20 years, has just been a little too fast, and folks are still trying to catch up, and maybe the slowdown will offer that opportunity for China to, to keep developing, but at a reasonable pace. So I, that sounds like a truly optimistic view. What do you think the challenges will be? What could get in the way of, of uh, China's future being so bright? I think number one really is about the healthcare system. Um, you know, I, I put environment aside because healthcare is something that is so um, on top of mind of every citizen there. Um, people are, you know, there's folks that are living longer and, and we're getting older. Um, the cost of medicine is very, very important um, because there is, you know, they're, they're not a managed care system. Um, it's very important for uh, everybody to understand what, how to um, keep their, keep healthy and to not have to keep, you know, all the, spend all their savings on potential um, health care needs and costs. So this is an area that the government must address immediately in order to keep peace and to ensure that the the people, the citizens of China are well taken care of. So Xiao, are there any other issues that you'd like to mention regarding this East meets West scenario? Anything else that you think is important to comment on? No, I think, you know, the one thing I, I did, you know, um, read about in The Economist is that I think children, um, I call them children because I feel old, but, you know, anybody born after the 80s, I think that folks need to learn um, a sense of patience um, and a sense of, of appreciation, you know, the Chinese um, kids born after the 80s, because we need to work at everything that we, we, we do, you know. So basically what I mean by that is I want folks to have a little bit more patience when it comes to jobs, when it comes to change, when it comes to, um, you know, th their needs being met. It just, I, I feel right now everybody is on this aggressive timeline to make specific requests, changes, you know, desires, wants. I think that 80, uh, th those kids born after the 80s really need to have a sense of um, appreciation as well as a, a sense for, for patience. Um, and I think that's where China can also make some key critical changes of, in thinking of, um, of the 80s generation. 
that's interesting because that's true. They haven't seen anything but explosive growth, so it's not unusual that they think that'll continue. Well, thank you, Zhao. It's been a delight to share your perspectives. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.